Welcome to the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. Join us here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Podserve, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. Clean by Design, How to Clean Up Your Healthcare Facility and Keep It That Way. That's the name of our first book by Bodan Kalamias. He spent 40 years helping new hospitals open and cleaning up healthcare facilities that were already open. So I'm thinking you probably found quite a few healthcare facilities that, shall we say, could have been cleaner. A little concerning, no? Uh, We found a few. Uh, A lot of, of them just needed some extra help. Uh, addressing particular issues. They had some weaknesses here or there, you know, maybe something on staffing, maybe something on quality, or maybe some other some other method. I, I wound up early in my career, just I was in South Florida in the 70s when they were going through their building boom, and we had 14 hospitals that opened up in three counties within 11 months. So I had a chance to open one of them with my boss and then got involved in the others uh, because there was a group of us that kind of got to know each other and said, what do we do here? What do we do there? And that kind of thing. So it, it just turned out to be a nice network. So why did you feel the need to write this book? A lack of information is the biggest reason. Um Going back to the early days when we set up, you know, cleaning programs for hospitals, the biggest pressure then, and this pressure still exists now, is the budget. You know, how do you know how many people you need? How do you know how much all this is going to cost? Right. And there was a, 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 a glaring lack of information about that kind of thing so that managers in those positions that had crews were trying to figure out the best way to do these things. Now, there's more information available today than there used to be, and I'm grateful for that. I'm glad to see that because it makes the management job easier. Yeah, you, you said that there was there was some issues. Like, what was the what was the issue that bothered you the most? People who didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> like, give me an example. Uh, we're looking at. You know, people who really didn't know how to maintain a facility, whether they were trying to, you know, clean something or whether they were trying to manage something, okay? That worked at both ends, all right? Um, A lot of times we went into a situation where, you know, one of the better employees was kind of promoted into a leadership role without actually having leadership training or leadership experience and and whatnot. And that's when things kind of started to fall apart. So me and my employers, you know, we kind of got together with people and trying to to help them develop some kind of a a program, some kind of, you know, provide either some leadership training or some technical training for people so that they could do a better job. And people wanted to do a good job. You know, that that wasn't the problem. I mean, people 
in this business are, are, are genuinely dedicated and they want to do well, but again, the information wasn't there or the technology wasn't there or something was missing. So there wasn't a protocol. Right. I mean, right. I find that frightening. So you're talking about, are you talking about like when I go into the doctor's office and I'm sitting in the room, you know, how those rooms are cleaned, how they're kept clean, what kind of products are used to clean them? Is, is that what you're talking about? That's part of what I'm talking about. Yeah. The other part is knowing what to do. But you say it is better now. Yes. Yes. Is it better now because of your book? <laughs> I, I hope so. I hope it's going to get even even better uh, because of the book. I mean, when I, you know, I wound up in a teaching position and I was looking for the information, my supervisor gave me a book that I that she recommended I use for teaching the class, and, and this was a part time effort. And I looked at the book and I said, I can't use this because it really doesn't address what people need to know. So I put together some information for the course and gave that to the students and they they liked it. They they went with it, you know, they had you gotta have the kind of information in this business where you can really kind of sink your teeth into and you can use it right away. So Can you give me an example of that? How do you buy products? You know, I mean purchasing is a field all onto itself. Now they don't call it purchase anymore. And in the healthcare business, they call it materials management. How do you structure your request for a proposal so that you can go to a supplier or a vendor and tell them what you're looking for? So if you're talking about products that you use to clean with, or if you're talking about the different types of equipment that's available, you know, you have to be able to describe what you're looking for. God, you would think that it would just kind of be the same across the board. It is similar. I wouldn't say it's the same. And I can say that because parts of the country are different. You're dealing with different climates. You're dealing with different populations. Uh, and, and those are things that make a difference in how you maintain a facility. But aren't they controlled, you know, by heat and air conditioning? Like immediately I think, okay, in the South, right, it's so hot, we, you know, is mold a problem and mildew more of a problem, let's say, than in the Northeast where it's cooler, but we have changing seasons. You know what I mean? I mean, the facilities themselves, they have their own specialties. So those are, those are unique environments on their own. Right. But other than that, I mean, I, I don't handle things in Chicago the same way I handle them in Miami. That doesn't work. Chicago's environmental, the atmosphere is different in Chicago than it might be in Miami. I mean, in Miami, you've got you've got something called sand, and it gets into a building, and it gets spread all over the place, you know, and it cuts everything up as people walk on it. So it's a, it's a scratchy thing and all that. So uh, you pretty much have to figure out how you want to deal with that. I know when a loved one is in the hospital, one of the biggest fears is that they're going to get sicker in the hospital than, than out of the hospital. Because there's this perception that there's more germs in the hospital. You got it right. But you also, I also tell people that 
the, the, the germs are separated by the patient rooms. The patient in this room is not exposed to the same kind of bacteria and germs as the patient in the rooms next door or across the hall, okay? So you've got a localized uh, problem. You've got a localized medical thing that, that the medical staff can deal with and the rest of us uh, can also deal with. And we take precautions, something called universal precautions in hospitals, where you treat each patient as, you know, each patient's environment as though it was, uh, you know, transmissible and you end that chain of transmission in that, in that particular room before you go on to the next one. So. When you talk about keeping things clean, are you also talking about tubes that are used you know, tubes that go in and out of their arms, their nose, you know, wherever. Medically speaking, yes. Yes, those things are, are properly handled, they're properly disposed of, and there's, there's really very little chance of cross-contamination. Aren't there laws in every state that, you know, you have to follow, again, certain protocols when dealing with things in a medical environment? There are some laws that pertain to the medical environment statewide, you know, in, in particular to each state, that's fine. The biggest thing, the biggest influence on, on medical care is medical protocols established by American Medical Association, by the American Hospital Association, uh, Centers for Disease Control and other regulatory agencies. They have over the years, you know, come up with the right protocols and the most the most effective means of treating patients with certain diagnoses. And that works. Now from that, the rest of us and the, the rest of us support staff in the hospital industry, we're going to develop similar, you know, we're going to develop procedures that support that. And that's been working pretty well. Okay, I feel better. I hope so. <laughs> Is your book required reading uh, around the world? I mean, <laughs> you know. I, I I hope so too. That uh, I I think it's a good read. I think it helps people a lot. I think it it contains a lot of information that people can you know launch and go get more information from. The some of the stuff I wanted to put in the book I couldn't put in there because it was proprietary information. So obviously, I don't want to you know violate the other people's confidentialities. But but I think that I gave people a list of resources that are in the book and other places they can go to, um, and and just find out more. I think if if that's going to help somebody do a better job, I mean. The book is really designed for somebody who is already in the business or somebody who wants to get into the business and, you know, figure out the best way to make some determinations about what kind of staff do I need, what kind of budget do I need, what else do I need to put those two things together and, and be effective about it. Is it helpful at all to the general public? I've got some interesting situations that I describe in there that I think the public would get a chuckle or two out of, yeah. Okay, give me one. Um, we had a situation where we came in as a contractor, okay, and we had 
some construction going on at the main entrance of the hospital where they were basically doubling the size of the facility. So the back of the hospital, the back entrance of the hospital became temporarily the main entrance. And consequently, we had to go ahead and spruce that area up. So it was a grueling 48 hours where we had to uh, strip the floors and remove all the old finishes and dirt layers and all that stuff off the floor. We didn't realize how much of the old finishes and dirt layers there, there were until we actually started removing them. Well, a couple of days later, we're done, and we had board members after that kind of walk into the executive's office, into the CEO's office, and, and, and say, hey, nice job. How You got this new floor replaced pretty quickly, didn't you? Well, they had to tell them we didn't replace anything. We just cleaned it the way it was supposed to be. That's a scary story. <laughs> it was so dirty. You made it yeah, look like it, it was brand new. Again, it was a nice example of right. people who didn't know what they were doing or why they were doing it that way. Yeah. But you're saying okay. it's it's better now. Oh, yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. Once you train people to do it the right way and to do it the effective way, they continue to use that method then, okay? Yeah. It's hard to go back once you know the right way to do things. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. How are you getting your book out there? I am sending out a slew of emails and letters, and I'm giving people snippets of what's in the book. To professional organizations, I, I'm reaching out to the American Hospital Association because they have a professional society for environmental services managers. I think this would be an excellent uh, reference book for them. I'm also reaching out to the junior colleges around the country so that they can use a book like this as part of their hospitality management curriculum. I used to teach in that curriculum, so I know that there's a, you know, uh, there's some good information out there, but by and large, there's, there's a lack of information about uh, this part of hospitality management. That's a great idea. Hopefully, people will take you up on it. I mean, are you known within the industry? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you did it a long time. So people are going to see your name and go, oh, yeah, this guy, yeah. Yeah, I got some, some friends that will help me get the word out. So Good. I, I, would, I would definitely appreciate that, so. Well, I wish you the best of luck, like for all of us, everybody out there who's ever had anybody. I, I, I'm scared to death of hospitals. Don't be. I mean, you talk about the protocols. I mean, geez, look what happened during COVID when, you know, there were patients in the hallways and what a mess. There's no way everybody was following protocols, right? They were. They were. They were skipping some steps, but overall, they were still doing their job. I mean... If, you know, you know yourself during COVID, everybody was wearing masks. In the hospital business, everybody's wearing gloves. And in a lot of cases, uh, hospital staff were wearing isolation gowns, too, as additional protection. Right. So. What bothers me is when I see somebody with gloves on and they, like, rub their nose, scratch their forehead. <laughs> you know, same thing like when you're in the deli and the guy's making your sandwich. It's like, hmm. I don't know. I don't know if the gloves, I don't know if I feel better or worse. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, well, it, 
long understood that the biggest transmitter of bacteria are the human hand. Yep. Wearing the gloves, regardless of your occupation, is probably a good idea. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, all in all, do you think we can have faith in our hospital system? Yes. Yes. All right. Yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take your word for it, and then I'm going to read your book. It's, I say that, too, because I also happen to be a trained respiratory therapist. Oh, so, so you know. I know. All right. Well, I feel better now. Great. I'm glad. <laughs> uh, listen, you have a great day. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alice. Take care. Bye-bye. I caught up with George on his truck route to talk about his book, The Adventures of Sam Novak, Following His Dream, a story that'll convince you you really can do anything you want if you want it bad enough. I've been parked since last night. Where are you parked? I'm not sure how to pronounce the name. It's I think it's Hagen, H-A-U-G-H-N, Montana. Oh, you're in Montana. Yeah. Wow, we were in Glacier this summer. It was beautiful. Wow. Yeah. Beautiful state. So what made you start writing? Well, I was watching a series of shows called Castle. I don't know if you heard of it. Of course. And back years ago, a friend of mine wanted to sit down with me and kind of give me my story of different things that has happened with me over the years. On We see a lot of different things driving trucks from accidents to monumental moments like being up on top of Coeur d'Alene on the mountain at night at midnight and the stars and the Milky Way so vivid that it's almost like you can reach out and pluck the stars out of the sky not counting the gorgeous sunrises and sunsets and stuff like that and all the beautiful parts of the country so he wanted to hear some of my stories of the difficulties the fun of driving, the harshness of driving in the snow, and some of the things that I went through. And he was going to put it in a book. And then that was before I started watching Castle. And I never got the chance to do it. So when I started watching Castle, I kind of basically said, you know, that sounds like something I should do, and did it. Didn't he write about... The detective. He was always solving cases. Right. And at the very beginning, the detective... Uh, she catches this case that's based off of one of his mystery novels. And so she goes to talk to him to get, you know, you know, try to figure, you know, see if it's a stalker or something like that, that's, um, doing it out of his books to, you know, whatever. And so then he decides to make her his next muse that he's going to write about her adventures as a detective that's it so you you decided that you would write about your adventures right forget about your friend writing about your adventures right so the adventures of sam novak following his dreams this is your story basically yes well as a child i kind of ran around all over town unsupervised i just had fun of not sitting still uh i get bored very quick I don't, I've never been tested for AD, ADT? ADD, yeah. Yeah, okay, you know what I meant. Okay. But I have a good focus span. It's just that I get bored really fast, like playing spades or heart or solitaire on the computer. I'll play it for like five or ten minutes and it's like, I'm done. I think that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, so driving actually fits my personality, I guess. Right. 
better than, and I've done construction jobs and stuff, but with my medical history, doesn't always work out. What's your medical history? My back. Oh, your back? Yeah. What happened to your back? I had a tumor when I was nine years old on my lower back. Oh. So I spent a lot of my childhood in hospitals and stuff, which was kind of devastating, but in a way, it kind of is a blessing, even though I wanted to join the military, but due to that, they wouldn't take me, so. Were you able to resolve the issue with your back? Yes. Uh, I'm pretty active as it is. Uh, I do know what my limitations are when I've gone too far in anything that I do. Doesn't driving long hours bother your back? Actually, the way the trucks are set up nowadays, it's very comfortable. Okay. The older trucks were more stiffer. And yeah, uh, then I would I would stop a lot more to unkink it, basically, is a better word. So you tell us about your childhood. Is a, sounds like you were a latchkey kid. You had this issue with your back. And you face a tragedy at the age of five. What happened? Me and my brother were playing. And somehow some gasoline got spilt on him. And the hot water heater would ignite it, caught it up, and then flamed it. And he had got burnt and passed away. I'm so sorry. That must have been horrible. Yeah. And then at nine, with the tumor on my back, the surgeries on my back, being sent to out of town for a period of time, and only coming home on weekends for like six months or so. Because when they did the surgery, they couldn't remove all the the tumor. So they sent me down to um, UCLA Medical Center where they did cobalt treatments on it. Okay. To kill the rest of the tumor that they couldn't reach without causing more problems. And I'd be there for like five or six days to do the treatments, which only lasted like 30 minutes or so, kind of like an x-ray series. And then on weekends, I'd come home and then go back the following Monday. So during this period, as you're, you're going through these surgeries and you're growing up, it, did you dream of becoming a trucker? Well, traveling, basically, and truck driving is a form of traveling. It says here that you got married, 10 years later you got divorced, and you had to get a job to survive. Yeah, because basically with my back the way it was, I was placed on disability, but it it never really set with me because I don't like to sit still and just do nothing. I got to stay busy. I'm kind of that kind of a person. So... I would do odd things, and then once we got divorced, we hooked. Up, I hooked up with him, and he was a truck driver, and that's basically what kind of set that as a goal to become. It's amazing that you were able to overcome this quote-unquote disability because how do you get off disability? Well, it's basically a will or a hope or a dream that you don't want to be held down, that you still feel productive. So you want to not be pitied, but encouraged to do what other people think are impossible for you to do. You know, there's uh, athletes, uh, even uh, Olympic athletes that only have one leg and yet they're skiers or they're marathon runners and stuff like that even though they're disabled. They can still be a productive person. 
So it's like gives you hope that, yeah, even though I have this that I can't do, I can still find something that I can do. And you were able to get a job, a legitimate job. Mm -hmm. When you're on disability and you get the opportunity to go to work, you're allowed to make X amount to a certain point, and then they deduct X amount from your disability. But then once you are productive and able to take care, you know, maintain your financials, all right, they basically say, okay, you're no longer disabled. You're able to work. So now you can go to work, you know, not worry about disability, and now you're basically independent of disability. How long have you been a trucker? I got my license back in 82. Was that after your first marriage? Yeah. So it sounds like you really found yourself after that first marriage. Yeah. You can do what is impossible. You can fulfill your dream if you pursue it correctly and, and willing to put in the work to do it. Because at one point, before I even, right after I got my license, I was riding with him and we were coming down the hill. I was asleep in the bunk. He woke me up and told me that we had no brakes coming down this hill. So he wakes me up and it's like, you know, what am I going to do? You know, I, I don't have no brakes over here. I can't stop this thing. And then he tells me that we're in neutral and we're loaded with 79,000 pounds coming down this hill. Kind of like a snowball out of control. We finally get down to the bottom of the hill. We stop, collect our thoughts and everything. How did you stop? Well, we got on level ground and, and just, you know, just not giving it any throttle or nothing. And then finally getting it back in gear, we just let it ease, you know, just slowly back down on its own. Finally to a point where we had basically back in control of the truck. And we finally stopped it probably about 30 miles from the bottom of the hill. Of course, we were white as sheets and everything. I can't even imagine. I mean, there were no other cars on the road, I guess. Oh, yeah. There was a lot of other cars on the trucks on the road, too. Oh. Uh, yeah. Because we're on a major highway. Uh, and so when we stop, we get out. I go to have a cigarette. And trying to light it, this DOT officer comes around. And she asked, are you okay? And she looks at me and I look at her and she just, she never asked anything else. She just walked away. And then we finally got back to the yard, dropped the truck off and everything. And then we were going to go home. But when he called in to give his check-in call, they told him, well, we had another load going back up, the same going back over the same hill, with the same truck and trailer to pick up another load to bring it back. And at that point, it's either... It's like the old saying, if you fall off a horse, get back on the horse to ride so you're not afraid of it. Right. And I think if we would have said, no, we're done, I don't think I would have ever been a truck driver from that point on. So basically, your your book is saying you can get back on the road no matter what happens. Yeah, you can get back on the horse. And even if you never do it again, it's better than letting it cripple you. Well, that's for sure. Now, now, when you're sitting at these uh, truck stops, I, I interviewed a trucker. I've interviewed a couple of truckers because a lot of times truckers come up with stories because you're on the road so much and your mm -hmm. minds wander. And he would, he, he would take books to the truck stops and sell them and do book signings <laughs> at the truck stops. <laughs> Is that something you might consider? I might. Uh, I am kind of an introvert somewhat but i'm still outgoing i'll talk to whoever 
It's just that I don't like to put myself forward or put a spotlight on myself. I guess is the best way of putting it. Never have been. Uh, okay. Usually the guy in the background that, I don't know, maybe I'm weird. I don't know. I don't think you're weird at all. A lot of people have similar issues. I just, when you were writing this book, like, how did you think you were going to tell people about it? A lot of people write books just to write them. They don't necessarily care if they sell any of them. Well, I'm kind of both ways. Yeah, I want them to sell good. Mm-hmm. You know, you always want to do good in whatever you do, whether you're driving a truck or working in an office or even being a janitor. You want to do your best job. Right. But at the same time, if nobody notices, you still have that gratification that you did your best regardless whether anybody notices or not. Well, there you go. Hopefully they do sell. I'll, I'll agree with that. You know, I let everybody I know, my inner friends and guests that I talk to a lot about it and everything, and hopefully they spread the word. But, you know, it's up to them. I can't force them. So. But short of that, you have the satisfaction of knowing that you wrote this book. Uh huh. And I'm also planning working on a second book to finish out the first book. All right. Because I know where that book ends. Is it yeah. a cliffhanger? Yes. Are, are we on a road going down a hill? <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to give out the, the... Pick it up in the next book. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe we'll talk again. Yeah, most likely. All right. Well, you have a great day. Uh, you too. All right. Be safe out there. Okay. I've been up to New York and Jersey and Rhode Island. Isn't it fun driving here? Isn't it great? Not in, in a car or motorcycle or bicycle. It, it would be wonderful. But with a truck and trailer, it's not. I uh, know. It's awful. It's not my cup of tea, no. I don't care what you're on. It's a no picnic driving up here. Yeah. Too many people. I've been through Washington, D.C., oh, Massachusetts, Maryland, all of them. Now, once you get, now, Syracuse, New York ain't that bad. No. Um, That's a long way from here. That's a long way yeah, from New York City. Uh, North Lawrence, New York, ain't too bad. Yeah. I've been there. Been up on around the Canadian border. It's not... Yeah, you're you're talking six hours. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a long... It's like another yeah. state. Uh, I got lost in D.C., of course. Yeah, yeah who I doesn't? I got lost in Baltimore. I've got lost in New York City going to a dock. Oh, I believe that. Um, it's just people are people no matter where you go. That's a given. Some are more more courteous in other areas of the country, but it's, it's just the way their lifestyle is up in there in those places. Yep. So. All right. Well, listen, you have a great day. All right. You too. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton Rossini. We hope to see you back here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first.